Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We're a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into this same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and to reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. We're going to start off this morning reading from God's Word, and I want you to stand. Uh, I have been personally reading Psalm 96 for the last several months, which has been a great blessing to me. And I would like to read that for you this morning. And if you would just uh, follow along as the words will be up on the screen. But I'd like to read Psalm 96, verses 1 through 10 for you. And it says, Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things he does. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be revered above all gods. The gods of other nations are merely idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The nations of the all nations of the world recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come to worship him. Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let the earth tremble before him. Tell all the nations that the Lord is King. Father, we lift you up this morning. You are above all other gods. You created the heavens. You made us. Father, we have already sung a song unto you. We've already blessed your name. And now, Father, we come. And, uh, Father, we're going to look into your word this morning. And I pray that your word would be understood in truth. Uh, Father, just help us to see what the writer Paul has to say to us today, for I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, now you may be seated, really. Okay, you guys all know me, and you know what you're looking for right now, right? Not going to happen. Okay. But I want to try this. I learned this from the Bible. Okay, everybody, get, re- get ready. I'm going to speak now. Are you ready? Listen to me. How's that for an introduction? That's almost a quote from Paul in verse 16 of this chapter when he says, O people of Israel and you devout Gentiles who fear the Lord, listen to me. So if he can wave his hands and say, get ready to listen, so can I. So, all right, here we go. We're in Acts chapter 13 this morning. This is an exciting chapter because we're talking about the very first missionaries that ever went out from the church. And so I want to read the first three verses and get us onto this page and see what's happening here. So it says in in Acts chapter 3, In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, 
Among the prophets and the teachers of the church of Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, who was probably from Nigeria, Lucius from Cyrene, Manon, a child companion of King Herod, and Saul. And one day these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work I have for them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid hands on them and sent them on their way. The church will never be the same again because the Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of men. You know, I thrill. Here's five guys, and they're worshiping the Lord, and they're praying at their business meeting. I just find so exciting the fact that whenever there's a meeting in the Old Testament, they're committed to prayer and to study of the Word of God. Oh, man, church, that ought to be for our leadership. That, that ought to be our model, our, our, something we look to from them. And as they're studying and as they're praying and as they're worshiping God, the Holy Spirit tells them to send Paul and Barnabas. Now, I can't tell you if the Holy Spirit spoke audibly, if they heard it, if he impressed it upon their hearts, if they were reading Scripture and something came there that led them to it, but the Holy Spirit impressed on them that they should send Barnabas and Saul out as missionaries to represent their church and to speak for the Lord. And then it says, after more prayer and fasting. Now, I think, what would happen in our church if suddenly we were going to send our leadership to the mission field? Well, the truth is, we are. <laughs> Pastor Clint is leaving. Uh, and I'll get back to that in a little bit maybe here. But can you imagine the church? We're sending Paul. He's probably the top preacher in the church. And Barnabas is the greatest encourager there ever was. So they're sending the two top guys out to the mission field. And I can imagine maybe there'd be a little discussion there like, is this really right? But the Bible says they went to prayer and to fasting. And with all my heart, I believe what they prayed for was good results for Paul and Barnabas because they were obedient immediately to the Lord as he was calling them to go. Well, I'd like to take just a minute and reflect on some of the missionaries from our church, if you'll let me do that. This church was founded in 1929. And in 1933, our church sent out our first missionary. It was Angus Brower. Now, we always hear of Angus and Emma. Angus went to the field by himself. He graduated from Moody Bible College in 1933. His autobiography says the ladies from this church packed two crates for him full of medicine, clothing, and supplies, and off he headed for Congo, Africa. While he was on the boat to Africa, he met a girl called Emma Anderson, and her parents were headed to Congo as missionaries returning to Congo. And Angus and Emma met on the ship and four years later in 1937 were married. And sir, do we have a picture of Angus and Emma? She looks so young. But Angus and Emma are married in 1937 and they served in Congo until 1977 as missionaries for this church. I think we owe a great honor to people like that. I'd like to mention somebody else from our church. Shirley Rasher Engel. Is Shirley here this morning? I don't, 
I didn't see her. Um, Shirley, would you stand up just a minute, please? I don't want to embarrass you. But Shirley and her husband, Larry, went to the mission field, and they gave their entire lives as missionaries for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I could go on and on. I, the, more I, the more I studied, the more I gave thought to it. We have Art Neville and Brower, who are, um, was a brother to Angus Brower, and they, this church supported them, and they spent a lifetime there. Um, Angus and Emma Brower, do you know who their daughter is? Ruth Rutherford. So after a lifetime of ministry, their daughter gives a lifetime of ministry. And then um, Art and Evelyn, their son is Dan Brower, who's a missionary. And he gives his lifetime of ministry. I, it just doesn't stop. Like the Van Kirks, who have given so much of their lifetime in Mexico as missionaries, and now their daughter Erica and her husband Billy are missionaries who have just gone to Canada. And God has just changed our church as we send out missionaries. We should be thrilled. And what's interesting is that they prayed for them and fasted for them. And I want to challenge you this morning. We need to be praying. I know fasting, but I, the idea behind fasting is I give something up. It doesn't necessarily have to be food, but I give something up to give time to prayer. And that's what the early church did as they sent these missionaries out. So Paul and Barnabas pack up their bags, and then we continue the story in verse 4. Sent out by the Holy Spirit. And may I just stop there again a minute? It wasn't the church that appointed Paul and Barnabas. It was the Holy Spirit. And this verse 2 talks about the Holy Spirit. Our church doesn't appoint missionaries. What happens is you open up your life and your heart and you ask God what he has for you and how he would have you serve. And then if the Holy Spirit impresses upon you that he would have you serve here, stay here. If he has impresses on your heart that you should be a missionary, then be a missionary. Pastor Clint came to the elders and he said, you know what? God is calling me to a fellowship of Christian athletes, to another missionary. And he shared his heart and told us what the ministry was and how God brought him to that place. And the church technically didn't send Paul and Barnabas. They released them and said, yeah, go. And elders said to Pastor Clint, we release you. Yeah, go. We agree with you. This is God's call on your life. And so actually in two weeks, um, we will include him in our service and uh, we will officially release. I think the bulletin said send, but we're releasing him, okay? Uh, as, he, as he goes. Okay, now we have a map up here for you. I want to show you very quickly some of their journey. So the Bible says that they went down to the seaport of Seleucia and they sailed to the island of Cyprus. And there in the town of Salamis, they went to a Jewish synagogue and preached the word of God. So, they're over on your, make sure I do this right, right hand side, we have Antioch of Syria. And you'll notice a little bit later, there's also an Antioch of Poseidon. They leave Antioch, they go to Seleucia, they sail to the island of Salamis, which, by the way, is Barnabas's hometown. He's, he's, at, or he's from Cyprus, 
the island of Cyprus. And Paul is excited to go there because there's a large Jewish population. And the first thing they did was they went back to the people they cared about. And I'd ask you this morning, are you sharing the gospel with people you care about? So they started Salamis. They, they preached their way across and get over to Paphos. And when they get to Paphos, they meet a gentleman there, and his name is Sergius Paulus. And we find him down farther in the passage in verse 6. Sergius Paulus is a governor. He's very insightful. He's very wise. And Paul and Barnabas have an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. But there's a man there, and the Bible tells us he's a sorcerer. His Greek name is Elimus. And he's telling Sergius Paulus, you don't need the gospel. Don't listen to these guys. You don't have to do this. This isn't right. They're full of baloney, whatever his, his comments were. He is trying to dissuade Sergius Paulus from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul rebukes him. And actually, he's struck with blindness. You know what? There's always resistance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you look in chapter, in verse 50 of this passage, you'll find that at one point, as they share the gospel, they're pretty much run out of town on a rail. I mean, there's a riot that's happening. They've incited the whole crowd, and they run them out of, the, out of town. The gospel is not always accepted graciously. And I would say to you this morning, we have missionaries who face difficulty sharing the gospel I don't know if I can say every day, but very often. We have missionaries in northern Africa. We have missionaries in the Philippines. We have missionaries in the Middle East. Their lives are in danger as they share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there is resistance to the gospel. And again, we need to be praying for our missionaries as they face this resistance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul and Barnabas leave Cyprus... And they go up here over to, um, uh, to the port here at Perga. And then they go up to the city of Antioch in Poseida, not the Antioch over here. So they've made this trip. Here's their journey so far. Over to the island, about 90 miles across the island. And they walk, preaching the gospel as they go. They go up here to the port, and then they move up to Poseida. And there they go to a synagogue. So let me share a little bit here what's going on. They go to a temple or to the synagogue, and they're going to worship with people. And uh, the traditional Jewish synagogue would work like this. You know the Shema that we've been saying lately with Pastor Jeremy? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They would start with that at every service. And then they would read from the first, some passage from the first five books of the Bible. And then there would be a teaching. And then at this point, they would ask, do we have any visiting rabbis? Would anyone like to share? Is there any rabbi here that would like to share with us? Now, that would be the equivalent of when I am finished, they say, do we have any visiting pastors? Would you like to preach too? (laughs) That seems like kind of a dangerous thing, but... Another rabbi was allowed to come and to share. And Paul, being a rabbi, 
was able to share with those who were there. And that's when Paul gets up in verse 16 and he goes, all right, I'm ready to speak. And he calls those who are of Israel and devout Gentiles and he says, I'm ready to listen. All right, are you ready to listen? Because what he goes through is about a thousand years of history. <laughs> and there's so many good stories, I'm going to tell you all of it. <laughs> it's going to be a while here, so settle back and get comfortable. No, I'm kidding. But I want to show you Paul's message and the heart of how he went to, about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now remember, he's in a synagogue. There's a lot of um, devout Jewish people here. And so as he begins his message, he appeals to them. And he starts out with, the God of this nation, the God of this nation of Israel um, chose your ancestors and made them prosper. God made the nation of Israel prosper in the land of Egypt. Well, that's kind of a miracle in itself. And how they got there, how there was, how Joseph was sold into slavery and ended up in Potiphar's house, translated a dream. There's going to be seven years of great prosperity. There's going to be seven years of famine. And then eventually he brings his family to Egypt and God blesses their family and it grows to a huge nation. But 400 years later, there's a king who doesn't remember them. Okay, so then the next verse says, and he powerfully led them out of slavery. The king that didn't remember them, he's like, whoa, this is a big nation. What are all these people doing here? We've got to make slaves out of them. And so he, he makes them into their slaves. And then Moses comes along and he says, a message from God. He says, you've got to let my people go. And the king says, I don't think so. And God sends 10 plagues on the nation of Israel, uh, on the nation of Egypt, like frogs and flies and darkness and, and blood in the water and death and, and eventually the Passover until finally in Egypt they say, go, please go. And as they left, the nation of Egypt pours out all their wealth upon them. Actually, the Bible says they were plundered like a nation that had been defeated in battle. They gave them everything. And the king now, and then three days later, it's like, whoa, what just happened here? We're going to get them back again. And, and the Bible tells us that Pharaoh and all of his soldiers, all of his chariots, all of his horses pursued the nation of Israel. They're going to bring them back. And Israel's standing there at the Red Sea, and they're in a panic. And God says, I'll deliver you. And Moses is pleading to the Lord, and I love the verse. I'm reading from the New Living here. And God basically says to Moses, stop your crying and get moving. And sometimes we just need to get up and get going. And God parts the waters incredibly. The nation of Israel goes through. And as, as Pharaoh and all of his army are pursuing them, God brings confusion to them. Our God is so creative. The wheels start falling off their chariots. <laughs> How would God ever think of that? The wheels are falling off. And pretty quick they're going... Their God is fighting for them as they're trying to drive a one-wheeled chariot or no wheels and things aren't going very good and all is, all is confused. And the nation of Israel gets across the water. All of the army of Israel is going through or of Egypt is going through. I don't even know how they dared pull into that. I mean, there's this dry ground. There's water on both sides. I don't think I'm going in there. But they did and they pursued them. God closes up the water. The whole army of Egypt is destroyed. 
when there was no hope for escape, when there was no plan, when there was no way, God delivered the nation of Israel. And I want you to keep remembering how God delivers here. So he led them out of slavery, and he put up with them for 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. Now, put up with them sounds a little, maybe not right, but there's two translations that are both equally right. One is put up with them in that they were constantly sinning against God. The other translation is he cared for them, which he did by providing water several times, manna every day. So God brings them through the desert. They could have never crossed that desert on their own. And God delivers them and takes them through the desert. And then it says in verse 19 that he destroyed the seven nations of Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. These guys were slaves, and now they're in another land. They didn't go out with swords and spears and chariots and horses. All right? And they're facing seven nations like Amorites, Hittites, Canaanites, Jebusites, uh, seven, <laughs> termites. Um, and they're facing all these nations, and God delivers them from seven nations. Like when Joshua takes on five kings of the Amorites, and the odds aren't very good. And the Bible tells us that God sent a hailstorm, and the hailstorm killed more Ammonites than the army did. And then Joshua wasn't quite done with the battle yet. And in front of the people, he prays, God, would the sun stand still, and the sun stands still, and the moon, until the battle is over. Now, we just had a series on prayer. Jeremy didn't say anything about praying a prayer like that in front of everybody. I might have whispered it under my breath, but to stand in front of everybody and say, God, let the sun stand still, and it did, that was faith in God. And God delivered them. And all this took about 450 years. Well, we're about halfway through. So why is Paul doing all of this? Why is Paul sharing, like, this is like me starting out this morning and saying, well, when I was four, <laughs> I can't remember four, so don't worry. Uh, but he's going way back to beginning. Listen, the people of Israel were so interested in their lineage, their heritage, and their history that Paul knows what is of interest to them. And so he starts sharing things that are of interest to them. And I'm sure they're going, and as he just named them and didn't go through the whole explanation, he, they're going, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a good day. Oh, yeah, that was something. Uh, you know, after they crossed the Red Sea, they, they, um, the next chapter, uh, chapter 15 of Exodus, is a song. And one of the verses in the song says, they sank like a rock. <laughs> I wonder if they were still singing that song, and they probably thought, yeah, I love that song. Um, but they're reflecting. They're right, they're right here with Paul, okay? Now, now, you think I'm a little scattered here, but Paul is telling them, their history and bringing this whole thing down with a purpose. We're going to see it in just a few minutes. And then he talks about the judges. And there's like Othniel and Deborah and Barak and Gideon. And oh, I love Gideon. You know that. So we've got to stop there a minute. So there's a battle with Gideon's going to fight a battle. And, and Gideon's got 32,000 men. And the enemy, 
has at least 120,000, because that's what the Bible tells us, the number they killed. So Gideon's got 32,000 against 120,000. That's like 3.75 people that each soldier has to kill. Well, God says, you know what? If you happen to win the battle, you're going to think you're really good. So you got to get rid of some guys. So anybody that's afraid can go home. And out of 32,000, 22,000 guys go home. Woo, that was quite an army. So there's 10,000 people left. And God says, you know what? That's still too many. If they would happen to win, you're going to think you're really something. So with 10,000 left, the odds are now 12 to 1. And I'm not real excited about those odds, but God said that's still too many. Send, some of them are going to have to go, go down to the brook and drink. And if you, the guys that stuck their face right in the water and drank, and some would cup their hand, 300 cup their hand. And God said, take that 300. That's a good number. Now, take that, that amount and go up against 120,000. So now it's 400 to 1. I wouldn't like those odds, but they're trusting God. And three, I was thinking about this this week, 300 guys go and surround 120,000. That's like me surrounding you guys, all right? And they've got pots of clay, and they've got torches in there, and they've got a trumpet, and they break the pot, and they hold up the torch, and they blow the trumpet, and they shout, for the glory of God and for Gideon, and the army turns into a panic and starts killing each other. You know what? 400 guys against 120,000 could never happen. But God delivered them and gave them great victory. And then he mentions Samuel, the prophet, who was actually a judge and a prophet. And then he mentions King Saul. And although Saul was a great king in some respects, Paul was selfish and got Saul, selfish and disobedient. And because of his disobedience, God said, you're not going to be king anymore. And it was 40 years later, but God took him from the throne. And God delivered them from a poor leader. And I say all of this, and we keep coming here. And there's one more, one more here. Hang with me. We're almost there. In verse 23, he says, and it is one of, um, let me back up just a little bit here. God removed Saul from being the king. And then it says, but God removed him from kingship and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, David, son of Jesse, this man is after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. David, a man after God's own heart. Was David sinless? It doesn't take long to think of that, no. But what made David a great man before God was when he saw sin, he dealt with it. He took care of it right away. And God honored that in David's life. And so we got all this history. We've gone all the way from Egypt, slaves, out into the wilderness, all the battles they fought. We've talked about their kings. We're going through all of this history. We're moving on here. And then he mentions King David, this man after God's own heart. And now he's finally getting to the message he wants for the morning. And verse 23 says, and it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, the promised Savior of Israel. You know what he just did? He took all of this history, all of this time, he brought it all the way down to Saul, all the way to David, who they loved. What a great king. And then he said, and Jesus is in the line of David. And that line was so important to them. But wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got to back up just a minute. It's like he had a second thought. It's kind of like me when I preach. It's like, oh, wait, 
uh, I, I got to go back here a minute, okay? So he's got to back up a minute. But he wants, and in verse 24 he says, But before he came, John the Baptist preached the need for everyone in Israel to turn from sin and to turn to God and be baptized. And as John was finishing his ministry, he asked, Do you think I'm the Messiah? No, but he's coming soon, and I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Listen, he brings them all the way through. He brings them to David. He introduces Jesus, but he says, wait a minute, there's one more guy. There was John the baptizer, and he was going around telling people that they needed to repent of their sin and be baptized. And that baptism was not salvation. It just said, here's my visual. I am not going to do this anymore. There's my step to show you that I'm doing it. And he brings him to all of that, and he mentions, so he brings John the Baptist who says, I'm not the Messiah, but he's coming. And as I'm studying, I came across something so interesting. Um, Matthew 11, 11 says that John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived. And I tried to figure out why, and I couldn't really pinpoint that answer, so you can ask Pastor Tom. But I'll tell you what I think it is. Here's what I think made him great. All of the other prophets, for all those years, kept pointing, saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And John the Baptist is preaching, and he's saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And then one day he said, behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist got to say, he's here. This is Jesus the one everybody's been talking about. This is the one. And he brought him through all of that history, through Saul to David, and then to Jesus. Paul goes through all of this so he can say, do you see how Jesus fits? Do you see how he fits? Let me continue reading here a minute. Then he says, brothers, you sons of Abraham and you devout Gentiles who fear God, this salvation is for us. This is something different to them. They weren't grasping it. They weren't getting it. And the people in Jerusalem and their leaders fulfilled prophecy by condemning Jesus to death. But he goes on and he says, but they didn't recognize him or realize that he was one of the prophets that they'd written about, though they heard the prophet's words every Sabbath day. He's saying, this is Jesus you study your Bibles. You sit there every Sabbath day. You look through all the prophecies. You see about this Messiah that's coming. And Jesus came, and you missed it. And he says, you crucified him. But he's so gracious. He says, but you didn't catch it. You didn't see that it was Jesus. Now, Peter, when he's confronting the Sanhedrin, and they say, by whose authority did you heal this man? He says, I did it in the name of power. I did it in the name and in the power of Jesus who you crucified. That's kind of in your face. But Paul takes this approach. He says, don't you see it? He's the Messiah. He was the promised one. This is your salvation. And you crucified him. But you didn't realize that this was Jesus. He came for you. There was all the prophecy on the day Jesus was crucified. Okay, I didn't, I read this, okay? And I, there were 28 prophecies that were fulfilled the day Jesus was crucified. 
Some of those were things like when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Or the very fact that people would stand there and wag their heads at him and look. Or the fact that none of his bones were broken because as someone hung there and was crucified, they would break their legs so that they would hang and they would die quicker. It was prophesied that a spear would go into his side. It was prophesied that those who crucified him would divide his clothes among them. All of those things. And then Paul writes here and he says, and he was crucified and he was placed in a tomb. Do you know what they did with people that they crucified? They threw them into a mass common grave. But of Jesus, it was predicted. In Psalm 22, David writes, you will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. And then, even though David wrote it and they would think, well, maybe that was referring to him. Look, King David died. He was buried and he rotted in a grave. He wasn't talking about himself. And Paul explains it a little bit here. And he says, even Jesus, when he was placed in a tomb, was a fulfillment of prophecy. And he's bringing him all the way through and he's saying, do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Verse 38. If we could have that up, I'd like you to read it with, I'd like you to see it as I read it. For me, I kept reading and reading this passage, and it seemed like everything he said so far was introduction. All right, here's the sermon. Brothers, listen. In this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is freed from all guilt and right with God, something the Jewish law could never do. And they must have sat there stunned because these are Jewish religious leaders. And what they did was they had all these laws. They had the Ten Commandments and um, I'm, th I'm thinking 240 or some other laws that they imposed. And as they would go through life, they would not do this, and 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 they'd be careful not to do this or careful to do this. And everything they were doing was trying to get them to a place where they would be right with God. And it could never happen. This was just right in their face. They're saying, we can be right with God by everything we do. And Paul says, the only way you're going to be right with God is through Jesus Christ. And they're thinking, we crucified him. Listen, Titus 3 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his great mercy, he saved us. We cannot do enough. The Pharisees could never do enough. For all they tried, we could never do enough. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. I could never earn my salvation. He says, not of works lest any man should boast. And the odds against um, Gideon and his men were 400 to 1 that they were going to win. The odds of you getting to heaven by good works, there aren't enough zeros. It's infinity. You cannot do it. Only God, through Jesus Christ, can forgive your sins and make you right with him. In the book of Colossians, 
chapter 1. We could have that next passage on there, please. The Bible says you were dead in your sins, and you were dead because of your sins, and your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ, and he forgave all your sins. And because of Jesus Christ, I can have a right relationship with him. In the same way God delivered the judges, through the judges, the same way he delivered with Moses across the Red Sea, God delivers us from the power and the penalty of sin through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm almost finished here, so um, the guys that are serving for communion and the praise team, you can come up here a minute. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Romans 5.8 says, But God commanded his love or demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, a while back when I was teaching my Sunday school class in Romans 3.23, I said it's the most uh, helpless verse. It's, it's almost the saddest verse in Scripture. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's judgment for all of us. We're all separated from God. We're all enemies of God. Read verse 24 today. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We have no hope, but in Jesus we have hope. And the last thing that Paul says to this crowd is, he says, don't be like your Pharisees, like all of the others and the prophets ahead of you who didn't believe this. He's calling them, would you believe now on Jesus, the one who came to forgive all your sins, and we can be made right with him through Jesus. Paul takes a long ways to get there, but he had to get them to Jesus where they could see how he fit and then shared the gospel of how Jesus saves. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check out fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.